Holy Father, thank you for the authority of your word, that it's alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. You told us that it was the instrument the Holy Spirit used to bring about our second birth. And you admonished us to put away evil that in clean hearts, like newborn babies, we might long after the pure and holy truth of your word. So help us because on our own, you've given us a brain to think with, but you told us not to lean upon it. We need the Spirit of God, our teacher, our helper, to come and illumine the truth that is here and personalize it so that we can apply it accordingly. Help all those that are listening who have never met Christ, who don't have assurance or have a false assurance of salvation. May you speak to them today. To those that are despondent and discouraged, who feel like failures, speak to them. You've called us to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, so equip us to do that. Come and fill me and use me, I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Take God's word. Would you turn to the prophet Jonah, the third chapter, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has been dubbed a minor prophet, not because he is unimportant, but because of the length of his message. And so since the fourth century, that's a descriptive term to describe 12 of God's prophet. And certainly their, their message is not minor. They are giving us a mighty message. Now, you're here for the first time, I know. People are listening to us for the first time. And so I want to bring you into the historical context of where we are at this morning. For the rest of us, I think review is always helpful because by the time we're done, I want you to be able to think your way through the whole book of Jonah. I want you to really grab a hold of the truth that is here. As we work through this book, my desire is that this book will go through us. Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to renew the mind, to change the way we think, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, if you remember, the book revolves around two commissions. They're given at the start of chapter 1, then again at the start of chapter 2. At the start of chapter 1, it says, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then in chapter 3, it says, now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So in chapters one and two, we have the first commission of Jonah. And if you remember, he disobeyed. He went in the opposite direction. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And so he heads to Tarshish. And if you remember, there was a motivation for that. If you're new, this is the sixth of what I plan to be 10 messages on the prophet Jonah. But in the introductory message, which is very important, someone said to me this week, I went back and listened to it and it opened the book up for me. It was that important. But if you remember, one of Israel's worst enemies at this time in their history were the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were a vicious, cruel, hateful people, and they were prophesied to destroy, to judge the people of Israel. And so in Jonah's mind, he thinks, well, if they don't repent, God will destroy them, and then they won't be the instrument of judgment. And so Jonah is a real patriot at heart. He wants to protect his nation. So as you can see on this map, uh, he is from a place called Hath-Kafir, 
uh, which is just a few miles outside of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. And he heads to Joppa, that's modern-day Tel Aviv. And instead of uh, going northeast, about 500 miles from uh, Nazareth to Nineveh, he goes west in the opposite direction to Tarshish. That would be modern-day Spain. Every once in a while, you'll read some new modern scholar who supposedly has an insight that no one else has seen. Tarshish is modern-day Spain. That is a well-documented fact. It goes back as far as 425 years before Christ. Herodotus taught that, and so didn't the church fathers and others. The point is, is that he's 3,000 miles from where he needs to be because he's running from God. But when you run from God, if you're one of his, you'll come under his chastisement. You'll come under his disciplining hand. And so God brought a great storm. God hurled it in his sovereignty upon the ocean, and the boat began to rock, and it looked like it was going to sink. The sailors did everything in their power to try to control the circumstances. They couldn't, so they cast lots, and they decide to throw Jonah overboard. And so the prodigal prophet in chapter 2, if you remember, becomes the praying prophet. If you were in the belly of a great fish, you would pray too. God appointed this fish, and he spent three days and three nights on this foam blubber mattress under the disciplining hand of Almighty God. And we read in chapter 2 and verse 9, if you're looking in your Bible, but I will sacrifice to you, here he is, alive in the belly of the great fish, I will sacrifice to you the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. And then and only then do we read in verse 10 of the second chapter, then the Lord, then Yahweh, commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God didn't let his prophet drown. God brought him under chastisement, but neither was God going to release him until he repented And he purposed in his heart to keep his vow. And even in this age of grace, when you make a vow to God, God takes it seriously. Solomon wrote, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he, the Lord, takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. When I was a teenager, God made it clear to me that he wanted me to spend my life preaching the gospel. And I vowed in my heart that I would do that until the day I died. And had I not done that, or were I in this day to stop doing what God called me to do, I would come under God's disciplining hand. Some of you have made vows. Some of you are sick with seemingly no hope of being healed. And you said, you promised God, God, if you would heal me, I'll do such and such. And God healed you, and you never did such and such. Some of you made a vow, your your life was in a financial mess. You said, God, it is so deep, I don't know what to do. Please, in your mercy, get me out of this debt. And God got you out of that debt. And before long, you filled those credit cards right back up again. And some of you still can't get out of debt because you are robbing God. You're not in obedience to what he has called you to do. And he won't give you deliverance until you obey. 
So here's Jonah, three days and three nights under the chastising hand of God, and old Moby Dick, Dick couldn't stand him himself, and he vomited him up. It's very graphic in the Hebrew, gravy and all. God disciplined his prophet because as Proverbs 3 teaches us, is quoted in the book of Hebrews, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, talking about his children, those who are born again, those at this particular time are under the covenant of God's favor, which the Jewish people were men like Jonah who were believers. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So when you think about Jonah, two big commissions. The first commission, chapters one and two. The second commission, chapters three and four. And you can break the outline down further in your mind. If you remember in chapter one, we called him the prodigal prophet. He was running from God. He was saying, in essence, I will not go. In chapter two, in the belly of the great fish, he becomes the praying prophet. He is running towards God. And in essence, he says, I will go. I will do what you want me to do, Lord. He is willing to keep his vow. And then in chapter three, we have dubbed him the preaching prophet, where he's running for God. And in essence, he's saying, I'm here, I'm yours. And then finally, when we come to chapter four, we will see him as the pouting prophet, where he's not running from God, he's not running toward God, he's not running for God, he's running ahead of God. And in essence, he will say, I shouldn't have come. Now with that brief review, we want to focus on just a handful of verses this morning, but we're going to read the entire chapter so we have a sense of the flow of to, as to where it's going. Jonah chapter three, beginning now in verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, having set the broad context, let me give you an overview of the chapter. There are three key words that really summarize what chapter three is about. Put out in the margin next to verses one and two, the word recommission, the word recommission, because these two verses really are descriptive of the second commission of Jonah. Next to verses three and four, put the word response because here we find Jonah's response to the second opportunity, the second chance that God gives him. 
And then if you would, next to verses 5 through 10, write the word result, because these verses give us the result of his being an obedient prophet. Now, in chapter 3, there are two cries. We have the cry of Jonah of impending judgment, and we have the cry of the Ninevites for repentance. Now, let's get started. We want to begin with the recommissioning of Jonah to preach, the recommissioning of Jonah to preach. Again, we read here in verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I have some good news for you this morning, and it is that our God is the God of the second chance. Let me pull over for just a second, come to the side of the road and try to give some perspective here. Some of you are in your 40s, maybe 50s. Maybe some are even in their 60s. And some years back, you made a promise to God that you would do such and such, but you didn't do it. Or you disobeyed God in some form or fashion, and you just feel like my life is a mess. Well, I want to underscore in your thinking this morning, our God is the God of the second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now understand, God does not always give his servants a second chance. If you keep resisting, if you keep rebelling, God can shelf you. That's one of the messages of the book of Hebrews. God can just lay you aside and shelve you and use someone else in your place. But in this case, under the sovereignty of God, the Lord hurled a great storm to get Jonah and everyone on the ship's attention. And then he had a fish that he commissioned to swallow Jonah to accomplish his will. Some have entitled this chapter, The Gospel of the Second Chance. I don't personally like that title for the simple reason that the gospel speaks of salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And there's no second chance in terms of salvation. When a person rejects Christ and dies as an unbeliever, there's not another opportunity. Jesus reminded the unbelievers in his day in Romans 8, 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, contextually, God in human flesh, the Messiah, the promised Savior for Israel and for the whole world, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The book of Hebrews in the ninth chapter says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes not a second chance, but after that comes judgment. But while there is no second chance in terms of salvation, there can be a second chance in terms of your service. Or to put it differently, cleansing and forgiveness before God for past sins can qualify you for current day service. But you have to deal with those past sins it was not until he promised to obey, he truly repented, that God opened the hatch and recommissioned Jonah. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And we could give multiple illustrations from Scripture of God being the God of the second chance. Think about King David. He wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 after he committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, after he was involved in the planned murder of Uriah, and in consequence, many of Uriah's men. Multiple murders. But then God forgave him and cleansed him and wrote those two psalms about his experience. P. 
Peter preached to thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. And he did it after he denied Christ three times and even said, I don't even know the man. John Mark, we studied him not long ago. If you remember on the first missionary journey, Barnabas wanted him to come along and Paul agreed. But during the first missionary journey, he washed out, he went home. And the second missionary journey comes and and Barnabas wants to take him again. And Paul says, no way, the work's too important. We cannot take John Mark. And so the scripture says there arose a sharp disagreement such that they separated from one another. And don't water down those words. It's even stronger in the original. They were divided. Instead of having one missionary journey, they went their separate ways and they had two missionary journeys. But what I find so intriguing is that towards the end of the apostle's life, he writes this in his last will and testament. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. And if you remember, he became useful under the influence and tutelage of Barnabas, who cared for him, encouraged him. He did what was right, and he becomes the great writer of the gospel according to Mark. Remember, Barnabas was the one who defended Paul when no one else could trust him there in the Jerusalem church. God is the God of the second chance. And some of us here today, we need to be reminded of that truth. Now understand, God doesn't compromise his standards because he's not in any way going to compromise his holy nature. But he can restore and reuse the repentant believer. Now people make all kinds of excuses and say, well, you know, God understands, I'm only human. No, God doesn't understand. God calls us to obey. Well, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, that's true, and that's why we're to walk by the spirit. That's why Paul said, walk by the spirit, that you might not carry out the desires of the sinful fallen nature. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God who cannot lie will not allow us to remain comfortable in our sin, at least if we know him, if we're born again, because those whom the Lord loves, he loves the world, but he has a special affection for those who are his. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so if in your human weakness, you say, I'm going to Tarshish, I'm not going to Nineveh, then you're going to meet God in his discipline. So God doesn't allow you to be used a second time until you respond to that discipline. And let me underscore that God wants to forgive. He wants to forgive unbelievers, and he wants to forgive his people. In Mark 3.28, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. You know, I've met people as a pastor in the decades I've served the Lord who think they've committed something that is so heinous and so evil that God just can't forgive them. And you know, I can't find any more a sin recorded in scripture that someone hasn't told me about in a pastor's office. We say, well, confession is just done to Roman Catholic priests. No, they're done to evangelical pastors too. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And then 1 John 1, 9, not a salvation verse, but written to those who have been saved, the promise to us who know him, if we confess our sins, 
The word confess, homologeo, to say what God says about the sin. We take ownership of it, that it's wrong, that we have violated his standard, his right to rule over us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise for cleansing, for forgiveness, not an excuse to sin, for he says in the same breath, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, while God can erase the guilt of sin, he can't always erase the consequences of our sin. If I were to be involved in some kind of scandalous behavior, could God forgive this pastor? Yes, he could. Could I serve as the pastor of this church? Absolutely not. Because a pastor must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, we are free to sin, but we are not free to escape the consequences of sin. And so Paul reminds the Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Many of you know that for a dozen years, Audrey and I worked with college students, first at the University of North Carolina, then at Duke University, and then in my years of seminary, traveling the country and speaking on campuses and the conferences and the like. And sometimes these students would say, well, you know, don't, don't fence me in. You know, I'm free to live however I want. I'm free to have sex. I'm free to get high. I'm free to smoke dope. I'm free to get wasted on the weekend. Yes, you are. You're free to do whatever you want to do. But you are not free to escape the consequences of that. And the next time someone tells you that they're free to do as they please... Bring them up on the roof of your house and ask them to jump down. Because if they jump, they are not free to escape the law of gravity. You are free to make any kind of choice you want, but you are not free to break God's spiritual laws because just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Well, I don't like that law. It could care less whether you like that law. I don't understand that law. You will have full comprehension when your head hits the concrete, I promise you. Our God is forgiving. He can restore you, but we are not to presume on his grace. And certainly he can't always erase the consequences. But I just wonder if there's anyone here today listening or on our other campuses who can relate to Jonah. I really blew it. I feel so miserable over what I've done. I feel like I've totaled my life. Can God still use me? And the message of this chapter is, yes, potentially he can, if you will get your heart right. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And notice what we read here in verse 2. When it came, he said, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, he's not there yet. I heard a sermon once of how Jonah was spit out in Nineveh, and all the Ninevites were blown away, this guy who came out of a great fish, and that's why they repented. May I remind you that Nineveh is 500 miles inland. (laughs) But I take it that he probably brought him back to Joppa, the place where he began the place of his disobedience, so that he would have a chance to go to Nineveh. God, in essence, saying, look, I'm going to give you a second chance. Go to Nineveh. 
And what intrigues me here is first the phrase, the proclamation which I will proclaim, that I am going to tell you. It uh, intrigues me for two reasons. Number one is that it's a future tense. I am going to tell you. You see, God doesn't give Jonah a chance to say, well, God, first tell me what you want me to proclaim, and then I'll evaluate whether or not I want to do it. So often we want God to show us the whole program before we obey, but he doesn't work like that. And if his program meets my program, then maybe we can have some kind of a joint program. But that's not how God operates. He has revealed his character to you, that he is trustworthy, and he asks us to walk by faith because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And by the way, there is a basic principle that's unfolded all the way through Scripture, is the way you discover God's specific will for your life is by obeying his general will for your life. And when you obey what you know, God then unfolds the next step. Do I marry Susie or do I marry Clementine? Do I work in Dallas or do I work in, in Chicago? Now, there was a popular book that evangelicals bought up in gobs. In fact, it's still in print. And it basically said, it doesn't matter. As long as you don't marry, say, an unbeliever, you can marry any believer you want. That while God has a general will for every Christian, he doesn't have a specific will for every Christian. And that is not what the scripture teaches. Gary Friesen, his book, Decision Making and the Will of God was just flat out wrong. Let me give you some promises in reference to God's specific will for your life. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, please understand, the context reveals that the emphasis of this verse is not on my desires, but rather on my delight. In fact, listen to verse 3 right before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And now listen to verse 5 right after it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So on either side of the promise in verse 4 is the admonition to cultivate faithfulness and to commit your way to the Lord. And when you are delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires that originate in your heart are put there from the Lord, and he will begin to unfold his specific will for your life. He's not talking about self-centered desires. He's talking about godly desires. Listen to this verse from Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, it speaks of God's personal, specific will for your life. David can write, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even, before, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Or listen to this promise in Psalm 31.3. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Or how about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Many of you have it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean. It doesn't say don't use, but don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And so when we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, God can certainly use the counsel of godly people. He can certainly use the promptings of the Spirit of God. He can certainly use different circumstances to give confirmation to his specific will and plan 
for your life. And by the way, there are countless New Testament examples that illustrate that very truth. Jesus reminded us that the very hairs on our head were numbered. That's how specific and up close God is. He said a sparrow can't even fall to the ground apart from his notice. And we are far more important than a sparrow. But don't expect God to direct you in regards to his specific will for your life if you are rebelling against his general will. And so here's God's guidance to his prophet. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, there's a second reason I am intrigued by this verse. Proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. It's because of the preciseness. What I want you to do is to proclaim what I am going to tell you. I don't want you to proclaim anything less, anything more. I just want you to proclaim the message that I give you. And that's important because we live in a day where somehow pastors are no longer convinced that just preaching the Bible on Sunday morning is relevant to people. Well, it's certainly not relevant to the unregenerate, unregenerate unbelieving mind. A person comes and they're arguing with a pastor in their mind who's got the Bible open. They've got issues and they need to be born again because it's not until you're born again that you'll be able to appraise and embrace the things of the Spirit of God. But pastors are to bring not their own ideas into the pulpit. They're to bring the Word of God. And I have a lot of pastors who follow me because I hear from them all the time. And I would say to any pastor listening, preach the Word in season and out of season. That is our responsibility. A lady came to me recently and she said, I have learned more in the last three months in this church than I had in the last 10 years in the church I came from. That's because this pastor happens to believe that his opinion is irrelevant and worthless and that what I am to open and preach is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel was told by the Lord. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious." God is reminding the prophet Ezekiel that whether or not they like the message that he preaches is absolutely irrelevant. The preacher's job is not to get the people to like him. The preacher's job is to teach what God has said. And God continues in verse 8. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. And then he continues in the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. 
and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. Remember in this day, the Bible was in scrolls. It wasn't in what we call a codex, a book that's bound. It was in scrolls. Eat this scroll, feed me this scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. He literally ate the scroll of God and miraculously digested it, and he found the word of God to be as sweet as honey. In similar fashion, God came to the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to these words. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, God does not have to get his people his pastors today to eat a scroll. But they are so to ingest the word of God for it to be such a part of their heart and life that it is so internalized that they are able to feed it to the people of God so that they can preach the word in season and out of season. And let me say, if you are listening to me in another part of the country, or in a foreign country, because every week we have people who live stream that God has entrusted to us, and you have a Bible-believing pastor who's opening the Word of God, then you ought to be encouraged and you ought to bless that pastor and pray for that pastor. I went to a conference with Audrey back in November, and we were reminded that there are Christians all across America driving every Sunday one to two hours just to find a church that will open up the Word of God and teach God's Word. But we live in a day, the last of the last days, where people want their ears tickled. Others are starving. One brother said to me, I went to that church hoping to be fed, and all they did was try to entertain me. And people today need to hear an authoritative word from God. And it's authoritative because it's the revelation of God. And we think, well, we need all these programs, you know, a dynamic youth program and, you know, smoke and lights and a dark room, paint the whole place black. And, and, uh, you know, we need all these counselors and support groups. And, but when those things eclipse The clear preaching of Scripture, that's a disaster. Listen to what Proverbs says, a verse that was totally ripped out of context, made a man a multi-millionaire. He took the verse out of context and basically said, what every church needs, what every individual needs, if your life is to be purpose-driven, or if your church is to be purpose-driven, is a vision statement such that everyone can basically repeat it, and that's what God's going to bless, and that's not even what the verse teaches. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you went back to that verse in Proverbs 29, 18, and you looked in the marginal note, literally the Hebrew text, where there is no revelation, where there is no word from heaven, where there is no word from God, the people perish. It has nothing to do with a pastor or with you being some creative planner in order for your organization to survive. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Amos said it in these terms. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. 
one of the main messages of the book of 1 Samuel is that it is a mark of God's grace when they have a clear, definitive word from heaven, and it is the mark of God's judgment when they do not. Oh, but someone says, you know, the the Bible is no longer real. It's the most printed book in the world every year. We have God's word everywhere. And yet in many ministries, that book that is the revelation of God is not taught. And even in some places where it's taught, the people don't have ears to hear. I told you once before, I was in a church over four decades ago in Boston, and I sat under the best Bible teacher I've ever heard in my life before or since. I've never heard a better Bible teacher. And you could tell, and though I was a relatively new Christian, you could tell that there was a frustration there that the people were not really taking seriously the effort and the time that he had put in to those messages. And then he left. And he went to a church where the people would listen. And I remember sitting in a small group, and the people said, oh, that Pastor John were here. Oh, he opened the scriptures to us and taught us the scriptures. You see, you can live in a day where there's a famine for scripture, and you can even sit in a church like this where the word of God is taught and still not have ears to hear. That's why Jesus said, let him who has ears, let him hear. That's why the writer of the Hebrews spoke of dullness of hearing. And so there are pastors who need to preach the word. Look, I hold in my hands this morning the word of God, the God who spoke a hundred billion galaxies into existence. I have the very breath of God in my hands, and when that grips the pastor, it will come out with a sense of passion and purpose and meaning, and you won't care what other people think. The fear of man is a snare. And my sympathy to those liberals who don't teach the Bible and they have to come up with something every week. I'm not that creative. They have to come up with something fantastic to say nothing beautifully. Listen, this is what I want you to do, Jonah. I want you to preach the message that I am going to give you. And that word I is emphatic in the Hebrew. It's like God underlying it. Not your message but the message I am going to give you. Why? Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, when I began my ministry in 1978, the number one issue that pastors and missionaries were facing concerned the inerrancy of the scripture. Is the Bible without error? Is it the infallible word of God? Is it inspired in spots? in which case you have to be inspired to spot the spots, or is every single word inspired? And so this Chicago statement on inerrancy came out that was a magnificent statement underscoring verbal plenary inspiration. Today the battle is not over the inerrancy of Scripture. It is over the sufficiency of Scripture. And so the church growth movement has convinced pastors because of the numbers that it produces to be seeker sensitive, to be attractive on Sunday morning to lost people. Look, I don't want to be unattractive to lost people, 
But the purpose of the worship service is first and foremost to build the saints, to teach them sound doctrine. And so today, you know, people are in all kinds of theological mischief. Let me tell you what God spoke to me. And they're getting these text messages and emails from God, as it were. And then they say, God told me to tell you like they're some super spiritual person. This is the apostasy that God said would come at the end of time. I don't know that we're going to be able to reverse it because there is so much that is falling into place in terms of God's prophetic plan, but it still doesn't change the responsibility a pastor has. The scripture is sufficient. And so Isaiah the prophet says, speaking the word of God, so will be my word, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, I am going to tell you. What I will tell you, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, my word, period. Now think about this for just a moment. Jonah's commission like ours is to preach the word. You may not be a professional pastor like me, but you have been given the Great Commission. And part of the Great Commission is to teach all that Christ taught. You may not teach on the same level, but if you're growing and maturing, by this time, Hebrews 5 says you ought to be teachers, and it's you all. You all ought to be teachers. In other words, there should be a certain proficiency in your life if you are a growing Christian. But understand that God unfolds his plan one step at a time. I want you to go to Nineveh. He doesn't tell him what the message is yet. I want you to go to Nineveh. God takes us one step at a time. And I think what's so cool is that God tells him to preach the word that I'm going to give you. I don't want you to go there and share your testimony. See, we live in a day of sensationalism. Let's bring in so-and-so who used to be a prostitute and let her tell her testimony. Or let's get Joe in who ripped off the first national bank and he got saved in prison. Let's bring him in. And we want to do sensational things. And he doesn't even want Jonah to share his testimony. I mean, his testimony would be a bestseller in our day. My miracle ride in the belly of a fish. Or maybe how I survived three days underwater. Or maybe why I don't eat fish anymore. (laughs) But that's not what he is to preach. You deliver my message. Don't tell your fish story. Don't dramatize your call back into the ministry. You just give them the warning that I want to give you. That's the recommissioning of Jonah to preach. Second this morning, I want us to think further about the response of Jonah to preach. The response of Jonah to preach. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city a three days walk. Now, what a difference from the first commission that we read in chapter 1 and verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee. That's 1-3. Now, in 3-3, we read, so Jonah arose and went. 
He obeys, no argument, no hesitation. He's paid the price of his disobedience. He's responded to the chastising hand of God. All he wants to do is obey. You say, wouldn't have that been easier for him to have done it the first time? Of course it would. Understand, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't lack anything. God is totally complete. And when we are disobedient, it's not God who is hurt, it's we who are hurt. God doesn't need to use me. He doesn't need to use you. He is totally sufficient in himself, and it is an act of grace and mercy that he would use any of us. Now, we just read, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And now we're told in verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, archaeology has shed quite a bit of light on the size of this city, and we'll talk about it more when we come to the fourth chapter. But Nineveh was great, number one, because it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That was the superpower of the day. And it was also great because of its size. And so it's here termed the great city. And archaeology has revealed that it was bounded by two walls. There was an inner wall that ran two and a half miles along the Tigris River, and then another eight miles around the inner perimeter of the city. And then there was the outer wall that was 75 miles in circumference. Some remains of the outer wall have been unearthed. It was 40 feet, 50 feet high, 40 feet wide, wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. And I stood once on the top of the Great Wall of China, but this would really dwarf it. Now, maybe theirs is longer, but in terms of the magnificence of this wall in Assyria, and the wall was basically your F-35s, it was your nuclear arsenal, it was your protection. This was an impregnable capital. And between these two walls, you have the greater Nineveh metroplex. How do I know? Because Genesis 10, 11, and 12, put that out in the margin next to this. You might want to write that verse, Genesis 10, 11, and 12, and that Nineveh was there with three other named cities. Now look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, one day's walk in the ancient world was generally considered to be about 20 miles, and that you could travel about 10 miles in the morning, about 10 miles in the late afternoon, and of course, no one walked midday. Now, get the picture. He's gone a third of the way through the city, and it's then that he starts preaching. And remember, this is a wicked and violent group of people if you were here for the first message. Archaeology reveals that, but so does the prophet Nahum, who comes after Jonah, who preaches to the Ninevites. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's to the point, you know, his heartbeat had to be (laughs) beating a little faster. These are people who hated Jews. That's why he didn't want to go there. They were one of the fiercest enemies that they have. He'd just rather have these, as we'll see, approximately 600,000 people wiped off the map. But God in his grace says, yet 40 days. He's extending the hand of grace. 
Could God just have obliterated all 600,000? Absolutely. But he's extending grace to these people. You say, well, it seems like God is angry. Yes, he's angry. God is always angry over sin. Sin disturbs God. But God would rather forgive someone than judge people. People today don't think that pastors should preach about hell. Someone just recently accused me of being a hellfire damnation preacher. I said, I'm glad to take your uh, title. I happen to believe if we had a little more hell in the pulpit, we'd have a whole lot less hell in this nation that we're in. However, the general principle here is that God wants to forgive people. He's not going to compromise his holy standards, but he wants to forgive people. And sadly, we have kind of reinterpreted the way God speaks and what he has said in his holy word. You say, would God literally wipe out all 600,000? That's the message of the book. I'll wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, I know God doesn't do that very often in the realm of human history, but sometimes God does something once to send a message forever. God doesn't wipe off every Sodomite city off the face of the earth, but he did it with Sodom and Gomorrah to tell you how he feels about that sin. And now we live in a day where pastors are are reinterpreting this whole thing. They say, well, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a lack of hospitality. Or when Paul says they did what was unnatural, now we have pulpits that are saying, well, as unnatural as if you were heterosexual and you lived out a homosexual lifestyle, or if you were a homosexual and you lived out a heterosexual lifestyle, that that's what's unnatural. You say, okay, I get it, you know. Uh, that can't be true. But is that not what Americans now embrace? Our own president said that this is a protected minority status. He came out last month, I was all ears. He said that sex can no longer be determined, male and femaleness, by biology. Oh, really? And so here we have the new rainbow flag of American Airlines that they put on their advertising. Notice they've added a brown and black stripe communicating that the LGBTQ plus IA plus movement is part of the civil rights movement. Listen to equate what Dr. King did in protecting people made in the image of God. That civil rights movement with moral perversion is just absolutely reprehensible. But this is what God said would happen in the last days. May I remind you of 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, look at the next word, unloving. Astrogos is the word. The King James, not using a word-for-word equivalent here, but trying to capture the nuance of the Greek, does a beautiful job in rendering it without natural affection. The family is under attack like never before because a nation is only as strong as its families. And so in the face of 
natural love, as God describes it in his word, we've embraced unnatural behavior. You say, I get it, you know, that's all the mainline denominations, but that's not the evangelical church. Oh, really? First Baptist Church of Orlando last week came out. Hey, that was a great Bible-believing, preaching church. In their history, they've introduced thousands of people into the kingdom. And now they boast to include, quote, homosexuals, transgenders, pro-abortion activists, and all kinds of God-haters to give them under the umbrella of love and care the opportunity to serve in their church. That's doing those people a great disservice. Now, anyone ought to be able to come to this church or any Bible-believing church. I don't care if you're a prostitute, a pimp, a pervert, a drug addict. I don't care what you've done. Everyone is welcome. But not everyone is welcome to serve. Only members who are willing to place themselves under spiritual leadership, it's called elders in the New Testament, who are converted, who have publicly confessed Jesus as Lord through baptism are welcome to serve. You see, we do them a great disservice because when people who are living in lesbian and homosexual and transgender lifestyles can come into that church and serve, we've lowered God's standard. We've basically said everything is fine, everything is okay. And when you lower God's standard, you do a great amount of damage to preaching grace because Paul reminds us in Galatians, the law, the moral commandments of God has become our tutor, our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. God has called the leaders in the church to protect the testimony of the local fellowship. You could only do that when you meet the two requirements that God gives in the New Testament for membership and thus serving. A regeneration that produces a new creature in Christ where the old life has passed away and everything has become new until you've been baptized as a symbol of that regeneration. Now God gave one brief expression of wrath in letting you know how he feels about sodomy. God doesn't wipe out every liar in the church. Ananias and Sapphira were born-again believers, and God took their lives for lying. But God is threatening, and it's not an idle threat, to do what he's going to do in Nineveh because he sees the wickedness of these people. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now remember, these people as archaeology reveals, as their own writings that have been preserved and has come down to us reveals, they were sodomites, they were sexual perverts, they took newborn babies and they offered them to the bull god and, and burned them alive. They skinned their enemies when captured alive. They plucked out their eyes, they impaled them on stakes. Sometimes they would bury them alive. Other records record that when they slaughtered their enemies, they would then take their blood and they would paint their walls to it. And they were proud of these things. Here's a piece of ancient Assyrian art dealing with their captives, plucking out their eyes. Here's a carving showing their invasion over Israel where they took the Hebrews and they impaled them on stakes. 
Here is their city gates, the hinges on the gates where again they depict their cruelty to their captives. The Ninevites were Israel's most feared enemies and they were intensely inhumane. They were immoral, they were brutal, they were perverted. Every time we go to Israel, we go to Yad Vashem. I've been there now a dozen times. And sometimes when we take people there, there's always a few people sometimes, not always, but most of the time, they come out literally sick to their stomach. Yad Vashem it would be the equivalent to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, but much more graphic and far more accurate. It doesn't even compare to what we know about the Assyrians. Now, if you read the book of Nahum, Nahum comes 100 years after Jonah. And what's so sad is that while these people in Assyria repent and God spares them, 100 years later, the grandchildren repent of their prior generation's repentance. They repent of their repentance. And God judges them. People every once in a while say, well, why isn't God doing anything? I mean, look at our world. Look what's happening. Why doesn't God do something? He is. And his silence speaks volumes because he's giving people an opportunity to repent. Understand, wrath comes on three levels. There's eternal wrath. That's in the place of judgment called the lake of fire. There is tribulation wrath, that is yet future, it will unfold over the course of seven years. There is cataclysmic wrath where God brings a great flood or destroys a city like Sodom and Gomorrah, but then there is what Paul calls in Romans 1, the wrath of God that is being revealed, where a nation suppresses the truth of God and God gives them over to sensuality, stage one. God gives them over to homosexuality, stage two. God gives them over to a depraved, upside-down mind. So I heard this politician talking about why we should, you know, defund the police and put a psychologist this last week, you know, in all these cities. And I thought, are you out of your mind? But that's what the way an upside-down mind thinks. They can't think straight. Oh, biology doesn't determine gender. Oh, really? What does? That's what upside-down minds think. And even here in the United States, God sees our appetite for filth and for sexual immorality and how people just kind of brush it off and entertain themselves week after week on it. He sees how we've redefined marriage. He sees the rampant premarital and extramarital sex. He sees the homosexuality and transgenderism and a denial of two genders, male and female. And God said here in Jonah 1-2, their wickedness has come up before me, meaning I, I can't take any more. God is long-suffering. But one of these days, the dam of God's mercy is going to break to his wrath. And he is already beginning to judge this nation. Now, Jonah had preached in some pleasant places before, as we discovered earlier in the first message. But now he's in a wicked place. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. God is saying, I'm giving you 40 days to get right with me. Why not just wipe him out? Because of the kind of God he is. 
You say, but they're so evil, but he is still compassionate. And Jonah will say in the fourth chapter, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning this calamity. Yes, the New Testament teaches the same thing. God will punish sin, but God loves to forgive sin. Peter will write, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Paul will say that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you die lost without Jesus Christ, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Because God provided a way of escape, someone who took your eternal judgment on a bloody Roman cross. Yet 40 days... And Nineveh will be overthrown, as we'll look at. This was not his entire message, but this is succinctly what he is saying. Nineveh will be overthrown. How are we going to apply this? Let me make some applications as we close. And let me just say before we get to the first application, I hope you're gripped with the reality that God is a God of judgment. We've got enough soft-spoken preachers filling pulpits all across Maryland. I'm not talking about people who are ranting and raving in an unhealthy way like we witnessed in this community 30 years ago. But I'm just talking about people telling people the truth. That heaven is real, but so is hell. So how are we going to apply this? Number one, I learned that there is a time limit set on every man. There's a time limit set on every man. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent, and then he was going to destroy it if they didn't. They had to settle the issue. What are they going to do? And some of you today, you have to settle the issue. Some of you are listening to me somewhere, maybe here. And this could be your 40th day. You say, how can you say that? I'm going to give you three reasons why. Reason number one, you could die today. I have two notebooks. They're about this thick in my office of the 500-plus funerals I've done since I've been the pastor of this church. And a lot of those people with a lot of those funerals I did, some of them were expected. But I would say the majority of them were not expected. No one planned to die in that given year. When January 1 rolled around, they thought they had a whole nother full year. We're all one heartbeat away from eternity. This could be your last day. This could be my last day. You could die, and then you've reached your 40th day. Do not boast about tomorrow because the Scripture says you do not know what a day will bring. So number one, you could die today. Number two, Christ could come and rapture the church. You say, well, I don't think he'll come back today. He'll come like a thief in the night to unbelievers. When the Bible describes Christ coming as a thief in the night, it's not in reference to those that know him. It's in reference to those who don't know him. Now, I hope you know that there's nothing prophetically that has ever needed to be done to fulfill the catching up of the church. It could have happened one day off of Pentecost, and the disciples are there on the Mount of Olives, and they said, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You're talking all about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to work in a powerful, incredible way during the reign of Messiah on the earth. Is this the time you're going to restore? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, but I got a mission for you to go and preach. 
And as they write the New Testament, they speak of an imminent coming, that nothing has to happen. However, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things need to happen for the second coming. People say to me sometimes, I wish we lived in biblical times. You're living in biblical times. One of the marks at the end of the age is there would be gross apostasy. Almost a day doesn't go by where I don't hear of some new woke church that once preached the gospel. There'll be growing apostasy. There'll be lawlessness and violence for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. There will be sexual immorality and sexual perversion for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Lot. And Israel will be back in the land And while seemingly nothing happened for 1,900 years, they went from 20,000 Jews to 7 million now living in the land of Israel. God is setting the stage. He could come back at any moment. You say, well, what if he came back? If you've heard the plan of salvation and you can't come to a church like this and say you haven't heard it, you'd be eternally lost and this would be your 40th day. I hope you understand that. Do you remember what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica? He spoke of a coming man of sin. Listen to these words. Then that lawless one, that's one of 30 plus titles given for the coming Antichrist. That lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That one whose coming, his parousia, is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, I think it's a gross exaggeration, as I've heard some preachers say, that the Antichrist is the incarnation of Satan like Christ is the incarnation of the Father. Well, number one, Christ is not the incarnation of the Father. There's one God, but there's three co-equal, co-eternal persons. But lay that aside, this is a normal man, but a man who is definitely inspired by the evil one. And so, on the one hand, he is a normal man, but on the other hand, he's a clever parody of what Jesus is like. Why? Because he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The coming Antichrist will come with great satanic deception. For this reason, verse 11, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Some of you, maybe you're listening. And you love sin. You don't hate it. You love it. Because you haven't been born again. Understand it, in Jesus' day, there were Jewish people who had a zeal for God, but Paul said not in accordance with knowledge. They tried to establish their own righteousness rather than the righteousness that God can only gift to you. In our day, we have people who fill evangelical churches whose minds are filled with knowledge, but they have no zeal for God. Why? Because they know the plan of salvation here, but they don't know it here. They haven't been regenerated because the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this current age. 
So for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. You say, that seems unfair that God would delude someone. No, not at all, because they had the opportunity to hear their truth and to respond to it because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. So behind this great delusion is this great refusal to embrace Jesus as Lord. And the Antichrist will mimic Christ. He'll come, the text says here, with miracles and signs and false wonders. All kinds of power will be given to this satanic counterfeit. And he'll be able to receive worship from people. The Bible teaches that the number of his name will be 666. In Hebrew, like in Greek, every single letter in the Greek and Hebrew alphabet has a numeric equivalent. We call it grammatia. And if you took this man's name and you took the letters of the name, it would add up to 666. And you won't be able to buy or sell anything. I had a Marine recently very upset after meet the pastor. He waited until we came out with another dear brother and just said, I'm, I'm concerned about getting this vaccination. I think it might be the mark of the beast. I said, it's not the mark of the beast. You got to have a beast to have the beast mark. The beast isn't even here yet. The Antichrist, the beast is another term descriptive of him won't be revealed until after the rapture of the church. But certainly in some countries, there's very little you can do in some countries unless you have some vaccination pass. It's all a precursor to what is coming down the road. Listen, the rapture could happen today. And if the rapture happened and you've heard the gospel, you will not believe you will believe what is false because of decisions that you have made. Remember, Jesus describes the preaching of the gospel like a man going out and sowing seed. And in Luke's account, Luke says, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. So that they may not believe and be saved. So what's going to happen in a broad way during the time of the great tribulation is happening in this day. Because you don't draw yourself into the kingdom of God. God draws you. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. The initiative is always with God Almighty. But then you have a choice whether or not you're going to respond to that initiative. And if you keep putting God off, his spirit will not strive with you forever. There will come a point where God says, that's it. So number one, you could die today. Number two, the rapture could happen. And number three, God's spirit could stop working. The appetite you have to even come and sit in a service for an hour and a half will be dissolved. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. You say, Pastor Carl, you're trying to scare me. You're absolutely right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Second, I am reminded this morning from this text that our God is the God of the second chance. I mean, how would you have confronted Jonah if you were in the place of God? Now remember, he's a prophet. That's not a self-appointed office. You are appointed by God to be a prophet. 
We've already seen in 2 Kings 14 in our opening message how under the reign of Jeroboam II, he had a very pleasant message to preach. But then when he is given the opportunity to preach to the Ninevites, he refuses the call. He runs in the opposite direction. God chastises him. God spared his life. And I suppose God could have said, okay, Jonah, I saved you, but I'm not going to use you. Your history. That's not what God does. You mean to tell me, Pastor, if I've rebelled, God can give me a second chance? Yes, he can. He may not be able to erase all the consequences, but don't think of yourself as some second-class person. God wants to use you. And there are multiplicity of examples through Scripture. What did Abraham do? He went on this little expedition down to Egypt, which in the book of Genesis is a symbol of worldliness. And of course, he got into trouble down in Egypt, picked up a a woman named Hagar, ended up having a baby with her, and the consequences of his decision is with us to this day. But God restored Abraham and made him the father of the faithful and the friend of God. Moses, he murdered an Egyptian. But God forgave him and used him to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. John Mark, he quit in the middle of that missionary journey, but God restored him and used him to write the gospel of Mark. Peter, man, he denied the Lord three times. He became the flaming apostle of Pentecost. I mean, have we never, like Abraham, gone on some kind of worldly excursion? Have we never maybe not quit like John Mark when we should have persevered on? Have we never, like Peter, acted cowardly when we had a chance to speak for Christ but our lips were sewn tight? Have we never, like Jonah, run in the opposite direction? Did God cast him off? Did God disown him? No, he loves his people with an everlasting love. You know, as I read this chapter, and we've only cracked the door, I know, it's not so much a revelation of the prophet as it is a revelation of the prophet's God. At the beginning of the chapter, God shows his grace to Jonah, and he reinstates him, and at the end of the chapter, God shows his grace to the Ninevites and that he forgives them, and because they repent, he relents. You know, if you know me, my heart beats for those who are lost. I want to see them come into the kingdom. But my heart beats, too, for the people of God who have failed who are just despondent, who need to find God's forgiveness where God reinstates them. Now, Holy Father, I thank you for the prophet Jonah that this is not simply what you have said, but this is what you do say today. And we know we have an accuser of the brethren who is so masterful at condemning those who have been justified, convincing them that they are washed up and done. But thank you that you are indeed the God of the second chance, that you can restore those who have failed. And I pray today for some brother or some sister 
who is sitting in their failure this morning, that they would own their sin and claim the promise that when we say what you say, when we confess our sin, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help someone else, Father, who has no assurance of their salvation and maybe someone who has even a false assurance. Their life is never fundamentally changed and taken on a new direction. Help them to know that you are indeed a God of justice and wrath. But you poured your holy wrath out on a substitute, Jesus, so that we could be forgiven. Help them today to call upon the risen Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you have some kind of public decision to make, to confess Jesus as Lord, to be baptized as an act of obedience, I invite you during this time to leave your seat and come forward. Maybe you've been saved and baptized, but you need a church home. If we can be that church, we invite you as well. Matt, lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.